All right, we are in uh, Esther chapter 7, and uh, tonight's called Reversal. We're going to be in 7 and 8, and we're going to see, uh, well, a lot's going to happen tonight. It's going to flow very, very quickly, and uh, the way we ended last week, it wasn't a good feeling for Haman. Haman was uh, yanked out of his living room, essentially, and his wife was saying, I can't believe you went up against the Jews. Your downfall has already started. And we pondered about that. And uh, believe it or not, we're going to hear something like that again today. And it's just going to be another moment. So uh, we get final opportunity to, to boo Mr. Heyman tonight. And uh, this class is blessed to have uh, my buddy Tom made us Heyman's ears, or these special cookies called Hamantashen. And they are delightful. So we get to... Uh, we get to be like a cultural Jew here and like stick it to Haman one more time. And we get to boo him in the text and we get to eat his ears. So it's just one of, it's just one of those sayings that, you know, yuck, yuck, yuck. Okay. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for leading us to this moment where we get to see your reversal in the text. And thank you for these men and women who have uh, had this wonderful journey together studying your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I was trying to open up with something fun and... I was, you know, driving to, uh, to Chicago on Monday, like, oh, I got to have a good story. I got to have a good story. I'm like, ah, Esther's going to have her moment in the text. Finally, finally, finally. I'm thinking, when did I have my moment? All right. So my brother, Micah, and I, uh, he's my bro. I love him, of course. And it, it, we have these fun memories of he was in high school. I was in college. I would come home from college, and he waited. For, he couldn't wait for me to get home. I worked like in an auto parts factory. I got off. I worked second shift. I got off. I got home, and he was waiting for me. He had the Mountain Dew all lined up, and we played Nintendo. Those are some of my most favorite men. When I go home now to go, go down home to visit my family, he has the board games lined up, and we play board games. But I've got this memory of this game, and it was a... It was a a game called Mario Kart, where it's a, a, like a, a go-kart racing game. Here's the cool part about it. It was called Mario Kart Double Dash. And both players got to hold a controller. And it's kind of like in the Olympics when you got the two-man sleds where they have to be at the same time. So this is like that, where there's a front seat and a back seat. The one in the front seat steers. The one in the back seat has the weapons. And the cool thing about Mario Kart is you get to throw these little, like, you know, cartoon-esque little weapons like shells and mushrooms. You get to throw these things to try to get the other drivers to, you know, spin out so you can pass them. So here we were. We were in second place in this key race. My brother was driving because he was the better driver. And I, to this day, love being the wingman. I'm in the back seat, and I've got, I had the best weapon, my favorite weapon, the green shell. Now, the green shell, there's a red shell that's like a homing missile. You let it go, and it finds the guy, and you can't miss almost. The green shell, the green shell takes skill. You have to line it up, and you can miss with the green shell. So here I was, and we were rounding the final turn, but before there was a final turn, there was a hill we were going over, and there was a straightaway, and I could see the first-place racer. And I kept telling my brother, I'm like, get closer, get closer. And he's like, get ready, get ready. I said, just give me a chance. I'm ready. Just get me close enough so I can throw this shell and maybe get this guy. Give me that chance. I want that moment. Esther gets her moment tonight. Esther 
finally gets her moment tonight. In fact, the tension of how this text opens, where Esther gets her moment, it's one of two ways. And my buddy Mick and I, the co-teacher, we, 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 were, we were debating this a bit. And his theory was that Esther has been dropping the ball all up until this time. Think about it. She bravely goes in before the king. The king extends a scepter, and she picks up the scepter and stands up, and uh, her life is preserved right then and there. What is it, Queen Esther? What's your, uh, what's your petition and what's your request, even up to half the kingdom? And she drops the ball, according to this theory. Strike one. Go, come to a, a banquet. And then they come to the banquet. Okay, Queen Esther, what is it? What's your request? <gasps> one more banquet. So you could read this text as she's been dropping the ball twice. And she had her moment. I presented the text that she was a genius. And that she was playing a great political long game. Which I don't know how she pulled off, but I guess she had five years to think about it. But, but yeah, and that she's finally, she knows her man. She knows her man wants to gather with his boys and drink. So she has one more drinking party. Come to one more drinking party again and again and again. But it doesn't matter either way because the text doesn't say, but it does kind of flavor how you're looking at our text tonight. Because you could argue that she's going to finally do the right thing and keep her word to Mordecai, but Mordecai for the first time is going to be there. So it's like, oh, I bet now you're, now you're doing it. I don't know. These are the things I think about in the back of my head when, uh, <laughs> when we read the text. But either way, that's just, there's, it could be a tension there. Because is Esther being faithful? Or is Esther, like, either way, it's like, well, Esther, are you finally going to come through? Or Esther, are we finally going to see your magnum opus? Which is it? 7, 1 to 7. So the king and Haman, boo, went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, I like that. She has them drinking a full day before they do anything. So they're drinking wine on the second day, and don't tell me, I know the text doesn't say, but don't tell me Xerxes was there for day one and not drinking anything. Because every time he does anything, he's drinking something. Okay, but I digress, I digress. As they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom will be granted. We've heard this a couple of times, haven't we? Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. Is this it? Grant me my life. This is my petition. And oh, finally, Esther, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress should justify disturbing the king. Now, ladies, I've heard enough stories from wives who, uh, they want their husbands to be listeners. They want their husbands just to listen to what they have to say, not to have to fix everything. And just listen to me. Don't have to try to solve all my problems. Just listen to what I have to say. Stop trying to fix everything in my life. But if there's ever a moment you want the alpha male type A, where is he? It's right here. Because here he is. King Xerxes asked the queen, who is he? Where is he? 
The man who has dared to do such a thing. Wow. Esther said, an adversary, an enemy. Here's the bravery. This vile Haman. Boo. Then Haman was terrified. He was terrified before the king. I know. The narrator lets us know before the king and queen. Oh, snap. The king got up in a rage. I like what the narrator says here. Remember in, uh, in the Charlie Brown Christmas, that little guy with the blanket everywhere? There's that moment where he drops the blanket, and that's like a big moment. Xerxes drops the wine glass, doesn't he? He gets up in a rage. He leaves his wine. I don't think he picks up the wine glass again in the whole book. I could be wrong, but a cursory glance is that he's done. This sobered him up real quick, as it were. Wow. Left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Wow. Number one, the king is comfortable and brings up the matter again with Esther. He's drinking on the second day. He's enjoying himself. Well done, I guess, Esther. You've got your moment coming up. He brings it up again. The king's like, all right, enough already. So what is this? You're going to have us go to another banquet? Well, what, what, what do you want, honey? I mean, come on. And What is it? Esther, or you could argue Hadassah, finally, at long last, makes her twofold request. The king instantly takes appropriate offense and demands answers. Esther delivers a knockout punch. Xerxes storms out. The great irony, Haman's final hope is his Jewish queen. He knows. I mean, we got to give Xerxes credit. This is a guy who has been so, oh, I don't know. He, everything is, is uh, he's going to act. He's impulsive. He's dramatic. He's all about his feelings. He's going to do something. He's going to do something. And here he steps out of the, of the room. He's just walking out like, I, I need to go walk. This is his guy. This is the guy he's been trusting this whole book. This Haman. Haman's wearing his ring. Haman speaks in his name. Haman's the guy, remember last week when uh, he, he learns about Mordecai was the one, he, he went, what, I got to do something for this guy. Who does he want to talk to? Well, Haman's out there. Bring him in. I want his advice. What should be done for the one the king wants to honor? Because Haman would know. And so... He gets betrayed by him. Rather than saying, guards, you know, off with his head, he walks out. So it makes a little bit of irony here. A little, there should be a little bit of drama here because it, it gives us a dramatic moment. What the heck is Haman going to do? Because he knows he's toast. The king is going to kill him on the spot. The only chance he has, and it's even a theoretical chance, and I only bring this up because the text told us to. Because he stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. His only shot is if he can get Esther to calm the king down. I don't know how that's possible, because she's the one that has called him out. 
and called him all those names on the spot. But his only chance is to even get the queen to calm the king down. I don't see that much of a chance at all. It's over. But he's got one hope, and he's got to beg. Oh, and, and he knows. He knows that she's a Jew, and that's got to rub the salt in the wound. Because he knows, because Esther just said that, my people being killed by Haman, or doomed by Haman. And so Haman knows, oh yeah, I was going to get the Jews. <gasps> oh my gosh, her? Oh my, oh, oh, that, oh, 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 oh no. And his only shot is to embrace that oh no and possibly get his life back. Wow. This is absolute brilliance in writing here. Go Holy Spirit, go. This is, this is amazing. The twists and the ironies. Wow. Haman's doom, 8 to 10. Uh, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Oh, look at, look at, look at, look at that image there. Now, this is the old, old school way to eat your dinner. You have a reclining couch. You lay down your head this direction, your feet that direction. You got the elbow cocked and behind the ear. You recline. Maybe someone's dropping grapes in your mouth from above. I don't know. It's the way Jesus had his dinners too. So that woman that wanted to come to, to, to pour the, 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 the expensive oil nard at his feet and use her hair, the only way she has access to his feet is his feet are kicking out like that. That's how they reclined at table. The Romans were famous for this. Where did they get it from? The Persians. The Persians became famous. They had their own little things they did. And the Romans got their things from the Greeks. And the Greeks were right around the Persian time too. It was, it was the fashionable thing to do to recline at table. She's reclining. She's not worried about anything. She's at perfect peace. She's just reclining at the table on her little reclining couch. Wow. She seems pretty relaxed. Falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, the king, and we, we get the picture. Maybe he's going to throw his face at her feet. And he's going to, please, please, Queen Esther, please, Queen. But it doesn't matter. Because the king, as the text says, the king, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman Boo was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Dang. And you've got to take molest there as just a general meaning of bother. I don't think he means that he was that Haman was sexually molesting her, but just the general bother, like, really, you're going to go about her person right now? It's bad enough that you've doomed her people, but you're actually going to go after her as soon as I leave the room? Oh, heck no. Here he is. Wow. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Boo. So it's like one of those uh, mafia things where the guy, the enemy's on the street corner, the really snazzy, like, you know, Cadillac Escalade pulls up. And all of a sudden, someone jumps out with a potato sack, throws over the guy's face, drags him into the car, and they speed off. Where do you think they got that? I'm just saying, it's that moment. They throw a bag over him, and they, they, they take him out of the room. Then Harbana, we're going to talk about salt in the moon. We met Harbana back in chapter 1. One of the king's eunuchs attending the king said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. And I love this information here. This whole book is full of information. 
We've been waiting for information. Now we start getting information. Wow. He had it set up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. Well, that's information. Who, by the way, spoke up to help the king? Wow. The king uh, is not walking out of the room this time. Impale him on it, the king said. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Look at the reactions of the three characters in verse 8. The king is mad, the queen is relaxed, and Haman is begging. Wow. Mordecai, uh, Haman's situation keeps spiraling downward. Another ironic reversal. Well, Esther chapter 7, that was really nice. Really action-packed and informative. Let's go right to chapter 8. We've had Esther's moment, Haman's doom, and now Mordecai's promotion. That same day that King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. Okay, we've been saying this whole time, what, and we, we were worried about Xerxes. What did Xerxes know, and when did he know it? We can't say that anymore. I think at this point, once Esther reveals that Mordecai is related to her, she's a Jew, and he already knows Mordecai's a Jew. He's called him Mordecai the Jew. I think every blank is filled out. Every I is dotted, every T is crossed. So at this point, anything Mordecai does for the Jews is not random. Right? I mean, it has to be that. I'm just trying to think, what is the last possible thing he doesn't know? He doesn't know that Mordecai, he knows Esther's a Jew. He already knew Mordecai was a Jew. He knows Esther's people are in danger because she just got done saying it. I don't know if he's made the connection yet as to what that actually means. Right, but that's true. We don't know that yet. If he's connected that, Haman's previous, or we don't know that yet. But he knows Esther is really scared, and he wanted to solve that problem as much as he could. And if that meant getting rid of Haman, fine. And so that's what he did. And now Mordecai, okay, now Mordecai is a relative. Okay, all right, more things falling in the line. Okay. Mordecai is given trust and power by the king. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman. So the dudes, they took him down from being impaled on the pole. And Mordecai said, give me that ring back. <laughs> Dang. All right, you got the ring back, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So he's given trust and power by the king. He's given resources by the queen. The queen just gave him a bank account, a big-time bank account. Remember, Haman had the, had the money. He, he initially came to Xerxes and said, hey, do this for me or let me do it and I'll give you money. Because remember, Xerxes was broke coming back from the war. He needed cash. He needed a coin. And Haman's coming in, I'll give you 10000 And Haman, ah, you just keep your money, but go ahead. Do your thing, but you can keep your money. Haman's got money. Haman right now is not. <laughs> He's not. Mordecai now has his estate. Wow. Haman's situation keeps spiraling downward, doesn't it? Oh my goodness, the existing problem. This is, what, this is why this text matters a lot. This is going to rock your socks. It rocked mine. Three to six. 
Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. Pause. Seriously? Esther, you have never been safer. Esther, you have never been better with the king, arguably, since the night you met him. Mordecai is good. Haman's dead. What in the world would you be fearing again to the point of getting on your face and weeping? Well, to one degree, she's got to keep her word, doesn't she? And she does with Mordecai right there. He told her, plead, beg. She does. But second of all, there's something else going on here that we can't forget. We have to remember this. And I wonder if Haman died with a smile on his face for this very stinking reason. Here we go. Three to six. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite. Oh, there's that Agagite again. Remember that from a few chapters ago? He's tied to the Samuel and, and Saul story of, of Agag the Amalekite, the enemy of the Jews, and that was his relative, hell-bent on destroying Israel, which he had devised against the Jews. Verse 4, Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther. Get up, dear, get up. And she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards him with favor, what are you talking about? You've experienced nothing but favor this whole book, Esther. But here's her moment, again, and thinks it is the right thing to do. If he is pleased with me, let an order be written, overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. This, O oh Hadassah, this is your such a time as this. Right here. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Wow. Mordecai once commanded Esther to beg for her people. She at last does so. There's a problem. Haman is dead. But that stupid law is still on the books, isn't it? And we've already learned about the books in Persia. Once that law is on the books, everybody is toast. You can't do a darn thing about it. Oh my gosh. Maybe, that, and like I said, maybe that would give Haman a smile, realizing, well, the law is on the books. They're dead anyway. This is actually not, not a small matter here. That's a problem. That law is still on the books. We need, we need the king to come up with a solution right now. Wow. We need a Xerxes moment right now. 7 to 14. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew. And this, this is, well, this is like what Zeresh, the wife of Haman, said last week that set me off. Xerxes gets a moment like this right here. I don't understand this verse. It doesn't make sense to me when God is not present in the way God is usually present. But here it is. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews. 
I have given his estate to Esther, which is implied. Esther, the Jew. It's implied. It's not there, but it's implied. And they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you. Who the heck do you think he's talking to at that point? I think he's talking to Mordecai. Who's got the ring. Who now has the ring. Who can speak in the king's name as best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with the ring can be revoked. Wow. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Shivan, they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders. Dang. Mm. If the room's not getting a little misty, it is for me. What a reversal. They wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, the governors and nobles of all the 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. And oh, by the way, that would have included Jerusalem. Wow. Ezra, Nehemiah, the whole people who are going back to rebuild the Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the, the city. That's part of the provinces. These orders were written in the script of each province and language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and with their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes were the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued in, as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves of the, on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out spurred on by the king's command. And the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. Wow. I'm sweating up here reading that. What a reversal. Mordecai himself, number one, could put the new law on the books, spread with haste. Number two, the Jews, you, you like our constitution? Amendment one, the right to assembly. Amendment two, the right to bear arms. They get it too. They were just given the right to unique assembly and the right to bear arms. Wow. Number three, the Jews could legally defend themselves and use the plunder as further deterrence. Essentially, um, yeah, if you attack us, we get to now kill you. And there was an old Roddy Dangerfield joke that said, you know, I, you think you grew up in a tough high school. In my high school, they were so tough. The opposing team sacked the quarterback, then went after his family. That's what's happening here. You get to then, the ones who attack you, you get to not only defeat them, which implies you have weapons, legally have weapons, but then, so as to uh, act as a deterrence, you get to go and plunder them. You get to take things from them. Um, there was, um, if I recall correctly, there was another time in Jewish history where all was lost, but they got to uh, be freed and they also got to plunder. The exodus from Egypt. They left with plunder. 
I mean, think about it. Later on, when Moses calls for a, a tithe to be given so they could build the tabernacle, bring all your nice things, how do they get nice things? They've been wandering a wilderness. They plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians gave them nice things as they left. Wow. Um, deterrence. So yeah, you don't want to attack the Jews because not, not only will you probably be defeated, but then you might lose your house. They may just come after you. Legally come after you. Um, wow, that is not small. That is quite a reversal from you are all going to die on this day to you are all going to be sitting very, very, very nicely on this day. And if you don't do that, you're disobeying the king. Good luck with that. From morning to joy, 15 to 17. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities became Jews. What? And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Okay. Is that just a throwaway line? What is that? Um, well, behold the change in both Mordecai and the Jews. Mordecai, the last we heard from him, was wearing ashes and sackcloth. And now he's wearing purple. He's got a crown. He's got a ring. And the Jews were wailing and, and rending their garments and wearing sackcloth and ashes. And they're wondering if they're going to die. And now they're rejoicing. Wow. There's a little tension in verse 17. Is this about power, allegiance, or faith? I don't know. Remember, the word Jew is one of the most unique words in all the English language. Because a Jew, I've got a friend who is an ethnic Jew. Like, Judaism for him is not just, he's a Christian now, but it's not just being a Jew in terms of a Judaistic sense. He's actually ethnically a Jew. Jude, a Jew is both an ethnicity and also a religion. And, he, and his, his joke that he likes to give me is, the difference is, he's like, you wouldn't join the Catholic Church and then expect to become Italian. Right? Well, I'm going to become a Catholic. Oh, that means I'm now Italian. So you just wouldn't take your vows and become a Jew in terms of religion that doesn't make you an ethnic Jew. If I recall correctly, our president, Donald Trump's daughter, is now an Orthodox Jew. But she's not an ethnic Jew. She's a religious Jew. So I don't know what's going on here. Because these people, would not, you could not become an ethnic Jew. That's not possible. That's like DNA time. That's genetics. But, I mean, this has been the plan all along. I mean, God said in the book of Isaiah, the temple is to be a house of prayer for the nations. Nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles. It's as if the Jewish people have always had a gospel mentality. They were to make further followers of God. We saw this happen at least two times in the Old Testament. Ruth, Rahab, they renounced their gods and took on Israel's God. They were not ethnic Jews. Ruth was a Moabitess. 
Rahab was from Jericho. They could not become ethnic Jews, but they could become religious Jews. So I don't know what's going on here. This is the ultimate, if you can't beat them, join them. I don't know. But just remember, Jew has a double meaning. And it's a double meaning that Christian doesn't have. Because Christian is not an ethnicity. Jew is. Muslim is also not an ethnicity. But Jew is. It's not, it is not just an ethnicity. It's also a faith. But that's the, one, that's the thing that makes the word Jew different. we got to close. And I don't know how to interpret verse 17. All I can see, it's a reversal. These people that were attacking the Jews are realizing, you know what? It'll be better for us if we become Jews. Maybe it's the same kind of faith that, that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar shows when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fiery furnace. And he's like, well, don't anyone talk any smack about their God anymore. Or when Daniel comes out of the lion's den. Nobody talks trash about Daniel's God ever again. Is that a great moment of faith? Probably not. But here's our closing thing. The concluding matter, Xerxes, God, and the second decree. Xerxes had one decree, and that one decree was, it's a decree that Haman originated and got on the books that on Passover Eve, every Jew was going to die with the full might and power of the Persian Empire, kill the Jews. That's the first decree. But Esther pleaded and got a second decree. That second decree is, you're not going to die. You instead are going to thrive. That first decree never left the books. But it did get replaced. Now what about God? Help me out with this. The Bible says the wages of sin is louder. Death, Death. yeah. We learned this in the, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned, I'm using my finger. Adam and Eve sinned, and that sin meant separation. Sin always leads to that kind of separation. That's why we are ambassadors, and we're reconcilers. And that God, the rest of the Bible, reconciles His wayward sinful children with His holiness and brings them back, pays the way for them to be reconciled to Him again. He did that through atonement. He did that through sacrifice. A substitution sacrifice. That Jesus died in our place bearing the wrath due our sin so that we can be reconciled. You see, God has a first decree. And that God's first decree is the wages of sin is death. Sin equals death. And that decree, this is what's cool, that decree never leaves the books. Just like Xerxes' first decree never left the books, and that's why, that's why Esther had to get on her face and go, husband, we got a problem. Because if things were to continue, the Jews were going to die on Passover Eve, unless something changed. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God's second degree is grace. Sin still leads to death. But grace, grace, that second decree, a gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. I am so very thankful that God, in His wisdom and His salvation plan, gave a second decree.
Now, we can't throw God into this text, but we can extrapolate. Xerxes has two decrees, and wouldn't you believe it, our God does too. And if all we had was that first decree, we would be on our face. Nice timing. We would be on our face. Oh God, is there any mercy for my sin? Oh God, is there any hope for my sin? Oh God. But God's second decree. Wow. So our concluding question as we leave for the next week, will matters concerning the Jews continue as directed, conclude as directed? Will there be a historical legacy? (laughs) I mean, what's going to happen from this? And chapters 9 and 10 are just going to, chapter 10 is dinky, it's like three verses, but still. We're going to conclude this next week. We're going to see how this all plans out. I don't know about you, but I've been strumming this note on the violin the whole time. I've been a Johnny One note pounding the drum that we can't truly see God's hand at work in Esther. I'm just about ready to give that up. God's not in the text, but God's in this text, isn't he? Oh my goodness. This just happened. This reversal just happened in our text. Wow. Again, the book of Esther is so great because it's like, imagine a world where God never speaks, he just acts. We just saw that in chapter 7 and 8. Wow. I'm just about ready to give that up. I can't do it just yet. But I, part of me is like, all right, God, there you go. I see it. I see what you're doing. But we still have to, we still have to embrace that tension. But Xerxes had to give it to us because he was a Jew. There's that line again. Xerxes this week, Zeresh, the, the Haman's wife last week. I don't know. I'm going to get off another tangent. We've got to close here. We can, reversal from chapter 7 and 8. Thanks for letting me share.